Good morning, everyone. Ah. Well, Charles de Gaulle, who was a great French leader of the middle part of the 20th century, is commonly credited with one of the great quotes of all time. He said, the graveyards are full of indispensable men. This is a lesson that it can be hard for us as human beings to remember and to realize that indeed we are not indispensable. Uh, we have a tendency to think that, you know, our, our family, our workplace, our uh, ministry, our church just couldn't get by without us. Right? Or we might feel that way about other people who are important to us, who we look up to, who we count on. But the reality is uh, that is not so. In fact, one of the um, godliest men I know, very humble man who uh, many years in ministry and was my pastor for many years, confessed, now he is older, that when he was younger, that being a minister kind of went to his head a little bit. And he confessed that there was a time when he kind of thought, you know, I wonder how God ever got along without me, right? <laughs> but we all can be tempted to think that way in different circumstances in life, can't we? Yeah. And nonetheless, the uh, continuance of time and the reality of death and the fact that history goes on is proof that we, in fact, are not indispensable. That there's only been one man who was indispensable, and he was no mere man, and he's not in a grave. The grave could not hold him, and that's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. As we come to serve him, uh, to fulfill his commands that he gave us after his resurrection, when he claimed all authority on heaven and earth, and gave the charge to his people to go and make disciples of all the nations. And this sermon today is the second part of a three-part series that the Three Strand Network is dedicating to church planting, uh, emphasis and focus on that. And just briefly, if you're not familiar, maybe a guest with us, the Three Strand Network is a voluntary association of half a dozen churches in Snohomish and Skagit counties that come together voluntarily uh, for, uh, to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable uh, confessionally, and to uh, work together to share the gospel in our communities, in our region, and wherever the Lord would lead us, even around the world. And last week, we heard from Bart, uh, Pastor Bart Hodgson, who was a uh, three-strand pastor here and is now church planting in northwest Arkansas. Uh, and he encouraged us in that, and he really particularly looked at the Great Commission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples. These are our marching orders. This is a call for all believers to be involved in this work, this work of evangelizing, of making disciples, and ultimately church planting. And yet it is easy for us to overestimate our ability in this, to think that we rely on Jesus to give us such a command, but that we need not rely on him to produce fruit through our efforts. And so the scripture passage we're going to look at today that will correct us on this thinking that we are all tempted to think is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And I encourage you to follow along uh, as you turn in your Bibles or pull it up on your Bible app or whatever it might be. Just make a few introductory comments to this passage. It is a direct response, verses 5 through 9, to what Paul says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, immediately preceding it, which itself alludes to something he mentioned back in chapter 1, where he mentions and rebukes 
the Corinthian church for having divisions, in particular having divisions where some people were saying that they follow this and this such Christian leader, Paul, Peter, Apollos, and then some even said, well, I just follow Jesus. Now, and so he picks us up in, again, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he, Paul says, he says, for one says, one person here in the Corinthian church, he says, is saying, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Are you not just operating in the flesh when you think this way about the leaders in the church? Now, Paul, I should say, Apostle Paul, of course, prolific writer, wrote uh, around half the books in the New Testament almost, and was a great apostle that we, most of us are probably familiar with. Apollos, perhaps some of us a little less so, he was noted in Acts as an eloquent speaker, preacher of the word. And he ministered in Ephesus, we know. It was also uh, 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, Acts 19, uh, chapter, one, or chapter 19, verse 1, tells us he also ministered in Corinth. He happened to be there. So both Paulos and Paul, Paul founded the Corinthian church, ministered in Corinth. The people there were familiar with them. And some were saying, well, I'm literally of Paul, or I am of Apollos. The translators supply the word follow here because that's what's implied. That's also the same implication of a disciple of, that I am a disciple of Apollos, or I'm a disciple of Paul, and sometimes you'll see it translated that way in different translations. Now, it's a good thing that we don't have, ever have anything like that happen today, right? We never have people, right? No, that happens today, doesn't it, right? right? It can happen with famous people. And praise the Lord for so many well-known Christians who are wonderful preachers and wonderful teachers, right? And contribute so much to our knowledge of Christ and our growth can. But at times... People can become enamored with these personalities and really kind of think that they just follow that person even almost more than they follow Jesus. And sometimes uh, teachers from outside, who are, again, very public teachers, well-known celebrities, can even cause divisions within churches as they were doing here in Corinth at times because people were following such and such and so and so in rivalry to each other. But it can happen... uh, within our, just in our own experience with people that we know very personally as well. Um, It's very important to disciple people and be discipled, but have you ever heard anybody say that so-and-so that they discipled is my disciple? Or hear somebody say about somebody who discipled them, I'm so-and-so's disciple? I've heard people talk like that, right? Maybe you have too. Well, Paul is going to rebuke thinking behind, the spirit behind such talk. Again, these relationships are important. It's important to disciple people and be discipled, but our allegiance must always be to Christ. And we just remember that none of us, even the best teachers among us, the most well-known Christians are not indispensable, and our allegiance and dependence is not ultimately upon them. Let's read... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to look through this. This is the plan today. We're going to look through this, and then we're going to talk about four truths that we can pull out of here that apply to the work of making disciples, of church planning, of evangelism. 
and that we need to keep in mind. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Notice how Paul starts here, and he says, in the response to this question back, or the, the comments back in verse 4, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He doesn't say who. It's not a matter of personal identification of who these people are. Everybody knows who they are. It's what are they? In other words, what's their role? Like, what's their part in what we're doing in the business of making disciples, of building up the body of Christ, of being the church? What are they? And the answer comes, servants. Now, you will see sometimes, I found in some translations, it says, we are servants. This is, shouldn't be done. There's no we are. It's just servants, the first word. And it's done this way, it seems to emphasize just servants. And so you will actually see some translations and converse to that say just servants or only servants, which is really what is implied. The ESV is very literal and just says servants, but the, there's an emphasis on that word. Servants. They're just servants. Through whom you believed. So, Apollos and Paul, they're just servants. Now, God used them, as Paul says here, he says at the end of the, uh, verse 5, he says, as the Lord assigned to each. Right? The Lord has given work to each Christian to do. He's given a role to each Christian to do. But in that role, they are just servants. That's all they are. That's what they are. Okay? And we all, uh, not just Paul and Apollos, of course, not just church planners or people who are well-known, all of us are given a part to play. We are all gifted according to a role and a part and God would have us to play. And later in the epistle, here in chapter 12, which we're not going to get into, Paul takes that issue up, that there is different gifts because there are different roles within the church, right? All serve together as servants. Some uh, roles, certainly Paul's role, was more high profile than others, right? but they are all important. And as we will see as toward the end of this passage, they are all ultimately equal before the Lord. There is no spiritual uh, hierarchy among the gifts. So what is Paul? What is Apollos? They are servants through whom the Lord has worked to believe, to bring people to faith as the Lord has assigned to each. And this is, before we go on to the next verse, I do want to mention, this is a good reminder to not fall into the other ditch, right? We are not indispensable. We all need to remember that always in everything, that ultimately, as we'll see, Everything belongs to the Lord. All credit goes to him. Right? We are completely dependent upon him. But the other ditch is to fall into passivity. And frankly, 
having a strong and robust sense of God's sovereignty, uh, which this church does and this church teaches. Sometimes those who hold to that can be tempted to fall into that. Right. Well, if it's all dependent upon God, right, and he's, he has to do it all, then I, I guess we don't have to do anything. We can just sit back and wait for God to work. Not so. Not so at all. You know, the, uh, William Carey, who was basically the founder of modern missions back in the very late 1700s, he was, you may know his story, he was British, and there were really not missions to other parts of the world at that time, and the Lord laid on his heart and had gifted him to be able to make disciples, to go and make disciples of the nations. And he desired to go to India and share the gospel with, where Christ was not known. And he was a particular Baptist. Nowadays, we would probably say Sovereign Grace Baptist. He had a similar theology to what this church teaches, and on that, certainly. And he was rebuked by many people who said, you know, William, if God wants to convert the heathen, he doesn't need your help to do it. We're not going to support you. That is, number one, that's true, right? Was God converting anyone dependent upon William Carey? Well, absolutely not. That's the whole point, right? We're not indispensable. Yet, on the other hand, that's not the point, right? God has called us to be his servants, to do work, to be busy, right? Not to be passive. And so, we need to always guard against that as well. Just... We need to be faithful to the assignment that the Lord has given to us. What is that assignment? Well, Paul will continue in verse 6, talking about he and Apollos, his examples, and he moves to an agricultural metaphor that the Corinthians certainly would have been familiar with. Corinth was a city, of course, but just outside of Corinth, there was a great plain. There was a big agricultural area. I don't know how many of us have ever lived on a farm or too familiar with farming, but we probably at least gardened planted flowers, whatever it might be, right? And we understand that if you're going to grow something, something has to be planted, and it needs to be watered. Um, it needs to be cared for and cultivated. And so Paul moves to this, and he says in verse 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, or the increase, is what this word means. So, Again, there had been an assignment. There had been a role that God had given to Paul to preach the gospel, to sow the seed of the word. He had given a role to Apollos to be faithful to, to minister, to come alongside, to disciple, to water, to grow. But God himself was the only one who gave the growth. And we see the implications of that in verse 7. Therefore, because it's God who gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See? So there's no room for boasting. Those who do their role, who perform what God has given them to do, it has gifted them to do, has laid on their heart to do, they need to be faithful to do that, but they don't get any credit or glory for it because what they have done They've planted. They've watered. They haven't given growth because only God can do that. That's something we really need to remember always, and it's easy to forget, sometimes for the best intentions, right? Because our desire is for someone to know the Lord. Oh, 
how you know, and it pains us when someone we love and care for does not, right? And we want them so bad, we want to just be able to change them and manipulate them and get them to believe, right? But we can't change people from the inside out. And that's the only change that God is interested in, ultimately, is from the inside out. That's the change that he is working. It's not about setting everything up the right way, having all the right laws and the rules in place, um, getting people to conform outwardly to things at all. Israel had a lot of that. They had God's law. They had God's word. But it didn't affect the change. Not because there was anything defective with what God had given. It was holy, just, and good, the law. But because people were defective. Because we have sinful hearts. They were fallen. And therefore, they were not able to obey God from the heart. And so God's remedy for that wasn't more rules, right? Because that's not the problem, right? God's rule was perfect. The people were defective from the inside. So what's the solution? To change people from the inside. So there's a new covenant that is given where God writes his law in our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. A heart of flesh is given, as the prophet Ezekiel said would come, that makes us alive to God, that we might truly believe him, and that we would love him, that God would not only love us, but we would love him. Only God can affect that change. This is the point. Only God can affect that change in a person. We are powerless to do that work in anyone. We can and should and must be faithful to our role to do what God has given us to do, the task assigned to each to water, to plant, according to our gifting, to do whatever ministry we have. But ultimately, we must wait upon God and trust God for the growth. And because of this, because neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth, we see, moving on to verse 8, that he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So there is a basic unity between the workers, those who plant, those who water, those who do whatever their role might be. There's a basic unity based upon equality of status and commonality of purpose. Again, there are different roles given to people in the body of Christ. There are different gifts given according to what God would design us to do. None is more important than the other. Again, sometimes some are more high profile. Someone, some gifting might make someone famous. Some gifting might make someone else continue in obscurity in the world. But they are both essential to what God is doing. There is a basic equality of status. There is not a spiritual hierarchy among the gifts or among our roles. What we are called to do is to be faithful to that. And there is a commonality of purpose. We all serve the same purpose. It's not, should not be anyway, to use our gifts and our role to glorify ourselves, but to serve Christ, to build up the body of Christ, to strengthen the local church, that the local church then might be able to be a witness and be able to extend the gospel outside. Whether we do that individually, because we draw strength and encouragement from the fellowship and the teaching that we receive in the church, or we do it as a, as a group, as a church. Again, something as such as church planting. 
mission work, sending people, whatever it might be that God has given to the local church to do. There's a commonality of purpose that we must engage in to build up the body of Christ. And so, Paul can say, then in verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, you might think, I'll be honest, I think, as I, as I just read through this at a surface level, after I read verse 7, that says, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. And then to come to verse 9 and read, For we are God's fellow workers. Well, that seems to be kind of a juxtaposition, doesn't it? Right? They're not anything but your fellow workers with God. How, how do we reconcile this? It's not as hard as it might seem at the surface, right? We are not indispensable. We are not passive. But we are called. Right? We are called to participate in what God is doing. It's not ultimately dependent upon any, any one of us individually. But the work that God has given his church to do must be done. It's Jesus who told us to go and make disciples, to participate in his work. And he empowers us to do that by the Holy Spirit, by giving gifts, by maturing us, again, by bringing the church together in commonality of purpose to encourage and instruct and grow us up and mature us in Christ so that we can, again, be said to be Fellow workers with God. This word fellow workers is the same, it's the Greek word from which we get our the English word synergy. It's working together, right? This isn't an equal partnership by any means, right? At all, right? We're, again, verse five, what are we? Servants, that's it. Servants, just servants. But we are participating. We are called to participate in the work that God has given. And he calls us to do that faithfully. And we'll see. So, the Lord, speaking through Paul here, says, you are God's field, God's building. Two common analogies in the scripture for us to see that there is to be growth and change, right? God's field, a field is planted and it is water that there might be growth, that there might be increase. The same reason that you plant a garden. Some of you may really like to garden. You probably like the process, but you don't do it just for the process, right? You do it because you expect and want there to be some fruit, just some increase for your labor. Right? God is the same way. He is doing work through us, in and through us that we might share the gospel, perform our role, that there would be an increase, that more people would come to know the Lord, that those who come to know the Lord would increase in maturity and they would be able to replicate themselves by those who are disciples making more disciples. This is our calling, our marching orders, to go and make disciples. And a building. Again, there's the process of building something up. There is growth and change that is to take place. And so, and to rely really upon this garden analogy, heavily, which is really what uh, the, uh, the agriculture analogy that Paul uses here in these verses there are four truths that we can see here that I, we want to talk about. And uh, I wanted to try to do something with the agriculture analogy. So you've probably heard about of truths to live by, right? Well, since this is a church planning sermon series and we're using agricultural metaphor here, 
we have four truths to plant by, four truths to plant by that we're going to talk about. The first is we should not use any human abilities, wisdom, or charisma to do what only God can do. This is the failure of the seeker-friendly movement. If you're not familiar with that terminology or concept, it is the idea that has been practiced by many in evangelicals in the last few decades, couple of generations, that essentially is the idea is to market your church to the unsaved, to go out in your community. You want to start a church? You go out in your community to people who do not go to church, who are unchurched, who do not believe, in the Lordship of Christ, and ask them, how could we make church so that you'd want to come? And then, depending on what responses you get, that's how you design your church. So you make sure that the music appeals that way and, and that you don't want to make anybody uncomfortable and so forth. And the idea is, that's the people who have done this uh, are well-meaning. Right? They want to gain an audience with people for Christ. The problem is that what you lead people with is what you lead people to. And so if you lead people with their flesh, then that's all you're leading them to. You're not calling them to change. Jesus had a different approach, as we would expect. Uh, In John chapter 6, he miraculously feeds 5,000 men besides the women and children. And because of this, many new people started to follow him. They were seeking after him when he Uh, began to leave the area. And he rebuked those who were newly seeking him and said, you know, you don't seek after me because of the sign that you've seen, because of this attesting miracle that points to my identity as the Son of God. That's not why you're following me. You're following me because your belly got filled, because you ate, because your flesh was satisfied. That's not what I'm after. That's not what I'm looking for. Jesus wants a spiritual change. It's not people who just follow him after the flesh. Uh, ben Wright, the pastor in Cedar Park, Texas, uh, shares this quote and concerns. He says, Beware of whatever draws people to your church that's not biblically essential. What's trendy now will change. The demographics of your community will shift. If you're not careful, your members will be a shrinking pool of people who are committed to a particular set of antiquated preferences because you never disciple them not to be. The better you nail a vibe that draws people, the harder you'll need to work to teach them that's not what they need most. The more your church's expressions of worship lines up with what people instinctively like, the more you'll need to clarify that those non-essentials really are non-essential. See, again, what you lead people with is what you lead people to. So what did Jesus lead people with? How did he lead with the gospel? Well, we read the beginning of his public ministry in the first chapter of Mark that he proclaimed that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Repent is how Jesus led. He called people to repentance and to faith. See, And this is where we see the real contrast. Rather than appealing to people and trying to get an audience with people based upon fleshly things, Jesus began with repentance and faith because 
Only God can do those things. As we talked about earlier, only God can affect a change in the, in the human heart and in the human mind. Only God can change someone from the inside out. As the scripture plainly says, God grants repentance. It's not something that we do on our own. And faith is a gift. It's not something that we just work up on our own. When we call people to repent and believe, those who respond and be faithful in that response are those whom God has changed from the inside out. So Jesus led with repentance. What does it mean to repent? Repentance speaks of change, of a turning, literally a changing of the mind. But it, what is implied is an entire redirection, a change of direction in one's life. Whereas one lived before for sin and self, now they turn their back on that and place their faith in Christ and turn to him and hope in him. They repent of what they turn from what has gone before in their lives before and turn to him and believe in him. And so you can't believe without repenting, and there would be no reason to repent if you didn't believe, if you didn't have something else to turn to. They always go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. Repent and believe. If you are here with us today and you have never repented and believed, you have never turned from self and sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and cast all of your trust on him. I encourage you to do that today. As Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? The good news is about Jesus himself. He is the good news. And though he was the eternal word, the very son of God, yet he identified with us out of love for his people and his father in obedience to him, he identified with us and became a human being like we are. And just like we are, with one big exception. We're sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the way we are. None of us could ever have or ever could live perfectly before God. We do not love the Lord our God with all our heart. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus did. He came, he was without sin. He loved his father and obeyed his father in all things and perfectly kept the law of God. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And he, the proof of that, of his love for his father and his love for his neighbor is that he gave himself as a sacrifice. He gave up his life for those whom God had given to him, offering himself as a perfect sacrifice that, so that the condemnation, that the curse, the condemnation, the judgment, and the eternal damnation that belongs to all the sons of Adam, to all those who have sinned after the pattern of our father Adam, who have rejected in their hearts God, that he took that sin upon himself and suffered that punishment, that all those who then identify with him, he has identified with us, now we must identify with him by faith. We must put our trust in him and recognize that he is our substitute, right? that his life counts for our life when we believe and trust in him, and that his death counts for our death. And that now, when we do that, when we repent and we believe, that when God looks at us, he, he sees Christ. He sees his perfect righteousness, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As the scripture says, for our sake he made him, and that's Jesus, of course, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, again, if you are with us today and you do not know Christ and you have not repented and believed, I encourage you this very day to humble yourself before the Lord, to recognize that you are a servant, 
You are not indispensable. You will go to the grave. And because if you die in your sin, as Jesus said, if you die in your sin, you are condemned already. But if we believe on him, we believe in Jesus, put our trust in him, then we can be assured of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And God gives his spirit to us to confirm that in our hearts so that we can know that we have those things and we can live in confidence so that we might go forth and serve him faithfully as we see Apollo, Paul and Apollos and as we are all called to do in confidence. Not in our own strength, not in our own flesh and power, recognizing that it is he who works through us by his spirit as we put our trust in him. So the second truth to plant by today is that the presence or lack of visible ministry fruit is not necessarily a determiner of faithfulness and not necessarily a reason to change course. Now, I should just say it up front. There are times in wisdom when it is important in ministry, uh, especially cultural ministry or church planning or something, to be flexible, right? Uh, to be adaptable, to recognize uh, that you need to tweak and, and change little things or whatever, but that's not what we were talking about here. This is the idea that, again, that the lack of visible ministry fruit is not necessarily a determiner of faithfulness and not necessarily a reason to change course. That the calling of God that he has placed upon our lives to be faithful to him, that is our charge, not to be concerned primarily about the results and to not gain our strength and confidence from what we see around us happening or to be discouraged because things aren't happening. Many of you have maybe heard or know the story of Jesse and Evelyn Brand, who were missionaries, well, they began over 100 years ago in the early 1900s in India. They were British, uh, went to southern India, among very poor people, a very disease-ridden area, and they lived in abject poverty because they thought it was important to identify with the people. It's like Jesus identified with us. When you minister to people, you need to be able to identify with them. So they tried to live like the people did. And they lived literally probably every day risking their lives, theoretically, by catching deadly diseases and fevers, a very disease-ridden area. And so for seven years, they did this without a convert. How many of us would have packed it in long before we got to seven years, Right? Yeah, probably me, right? For seven years without a convert. But in time, God did bring fruit. Right? He finally did bring a convert, and I won't get into the whole story. You can, if you're not familiar, check it out somewhere. But and Jesse died along the way. I think he was about 50. I think it was 1929. And Evelyn continued on her own until she was 95 years old, over 60 years of service. Again, that began with seven years of nothing, of no success. But they were faithful. Again, the lack of visible ministry fruit is not necessarily a determiner of, of faithfulness. And it should not necessarily cause us to change course, but to continue. Truth to plant by number three. God's sovereign will in ministry gives us confidence to act in bold faithfulness. Now, no doubt Jesse and Evelyn Brand knew something of this, to be able to continue to minister when it didn't seem like it was doing anything, right? 
God's sovereign will. Our trust is in God. Again, who gives the growth? We can plant. We can water. We do that evangelistically. We do that with church planting. We do that in missions. We do that in neighborhoods, wherever it might be. We plant water. But who gives the growth? Only God. And we put our trust in him that he will do that according to his purpose and his timing. And we have confidence in that. And that confidence that we can draw from that, what a blessing. It gives us the confidence to act in boldness to, and faithfulness to continue. I know if any of you have heard of Tom Carson, uh, but uh, he's been dead for many years, but you might be familiar with his son, D.A. Carson, or Don Carson. And Tom Carson was a church planner in French Canada and Quebec back after World War II in the 50s and 60s. Very, very tough environment. Uh, the very, still very, a very traditional society. Um, uh, the Catholic Church reigned supreme. Uh, again, French Catholics and the church, what we call church and state, they were very much together again uh, at that time in Quebec, Canada. And, and Tom was a faithful church planner, but the churches were always small. He spent time in jail. He was persecuted. Again, the church and state were in, in league. Uh, he persevered uh, through that. Why? Well, his son Don shared in a book that uh, he asked his dad once, aren't you discouraged? <laughs> Don't you want to feel like you want to quit? Because, you know, all you're getting is a, it seems like you're paying a high price, right? A big sacrifice. I mean, he has a family to support. He's in jail at times. And the churches are small. It doesn't seem like you're really reaching anybody. Do you get discouraged? And this is what the elder Carson said to the younger Carson. He alluding to Acts 18. He said that he is convinced that God has many people for us here. There's many people. He was trusting in God's sovereign will that God would bring people, uh, that God had ordained that there would be salvation here. This comes from Acts 18.5, this illusion, or excuse me, Acts 18, beginning with verse 5, that I want to read from. And the Apostle Paul is, uh, comes into Corinth, as it so happened, uh, and he'd been in Athens, and he came, he tells us elsewhere, with fear and trembling, uh, he, wherever he went, he faced opposition and hostility, and he comes to Corinth, and he meets much of the same there. Uh, we read, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied, see, Paul had already been there, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he took out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And here's the encouragement. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I'm not claiming and I don't believe it. Tom Carson or 
most other people ever claim to have some sort of vision or direct communication with the Lord on something like this, right? But we can draw confidence to know that God's elect are God's elect, that he has chosen people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And if we are faithful in the role that he has given us to plant and to water and to be faithful in our ministry, uh, that the Lord can and will use that. He will do it according to his purposes and his timing. We can't control that part, but we aren't called to that part. We're called to be faithful in what he has given us to do. And we can draw confidence, again, trusting in God's sovereignty. Finally, the fourth truth to plant by is that God's sovereign will and ministry calls us to unity and Catholicity with fellow believers. The idea here is that we're not trying to grow our own empire, but to build Christ's church and expand his kingdom. And so when we talk about unity, that we recognize the importance, of course, of the local church, and that that's how God makes disciples. That's why we desire to plant churches, uh, is because God uses local churches to make disciples. That's where people are discipled, is at local churches. That's where they're encouraged and they're taught and they're held accountable so they can grow in Christ. But there are other local churches, right? We're not the only local church. There are other faithful, gospel-preaching local churches, and to look to cooperate with those ministries when we are able, when the Lord calls us and enables us to do so, when we think it is wise. And that's this idea of Catholicity. This is a small c, Catholicity. It doesn't have any reference to the Catholic Church that I mentioned for earlier, like in Quebec, Canada. Uh, but to Catholicity, universality, to recognize that there is a universal church. That there are local churches, and local churches is how God works. He works through us. But there are many local churches, and we all comprise the universal church. And so we need to remember that and recognize that there's cooperation that should be done with fellow believers. And that our church isn't forever. We need to invest in other churches. We need to invest in the continuous growth of other churches. You know, um, and I didn't, I don't, know if, is, I don't know if Jake's here or not, and I didn't see him this morning. So I didn't get his permission to say this, but it's, it's nothing controversial. But uh, our road group on Tuesday, he said something uh, that's kind of obvious, but we oftentimes forget maybe. He said, we're talking about this kind of subject, and he said, you know, no local church lasts forever, right? I mean, you read about the churches in the New Testament. I mean, they're not there. There's no institutional continuity, right? Um, churches all have an expiration date on them. If nothing else, the local church is on this earth will end when the Lord returns. But the universal church goes on. Right? And we do well and do are wise and respectful of God's purposes in making disciples when we work through the local church and give um, opportunity for the local church to grow, but recognize that there are other local churches and work with them. See, we don't plant churches because we know the result, <coughs> excuse me, or have some magic formula to guarantee success. We don't plant churches because we think we figured out the best way to do church. We don't plant churches because it is easy. We plant churches because we are called to make disciples. And disciples are made through local churches. As we do this, we trust God to change hearts and build his church, leaving the specific results to him. We are called to faithfulness, not to success. Not that there's anything wrong with success, right? but that's not what we're called to. We're called to faithfulness. And so 
To conclude, I want to share a testimony of Don Carson about his father uh, from a book he wrote about his, a father, his, about his father. And I should have mentioned earlier, to set this up, that, that though the elder Carson uh, always <laughs> ministered small churches, there was no real growth during his ministry time there in dif- difficult, difficult circumstances in Quebec. Yet later, uh, beginning in the 1970s, there was an opening up of Quebec society, and evangelical churches began to grow, and there was revival, and it was no doubt in part because of people who were faithful, like the Elder Carson, to minister even when there didn't seem to be any fruit. They were laying foundations. They were sowing seed and watering, and in due time, God gave the growth. So, again, I want to share this testimony of Don Carson regarding his church planning father, and I hope we'll recognize in here a few things. All right. Number one, this is a testimony about a man who did not think that he was indispensable. Hardly. Right. Nor was he passive, however. Right. And I hope that we can all identify with this. The things that the younger Carson is going to say about his father, uh, yes, his father was a, a pastor, but... We don't need to be a, a pastor or a teacher or anything to be able to identify with these things and, and the faithfulness that he, he, he performed what God had given him to do. So I hope we see that and, and can identify in here and, and recognize these things. So, and I quote here from uh, Don Carson about his father. He says, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book, capital B, right? He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this all men know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, but his own commitment to historic confessionalism was unyielding. In his ethics, he was a man of principle. His own ecclesiastical circles, church circles, were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, remember, he's Canadian, No attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting, because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man, or a great man, 
He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, which was the title of the book. I should have mentioned that. Uh, but because he was a forgiven man, and he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Those words should be the words that we all long to hear more than any other words. I pray that it be so. And we're all called to be faithful servants, right? to plant, to water, and to give God the glory for any growth that occurs in our lives and the lives of those who we might touch and minister in our lives. I pray and hope, as, as we will pray now, that again, that we just see that we are called to be faithful, not successful. Not that there's anything wrong with success, but we are called to be faithful in what God has given us to do and to give him the glory. Let's pray to him now. Lord, oh Lord, indeed we do give you all the glory. We give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ as again we reflect on his sacrifice, on his love. What love that he has for his people. What love he has for you. Lord, to give himself as a sacrifice, Lord. Though so undeserved, Lord, that we nonetheless are recipients of your grace and we rejoice in it, we gladly receive your grace, Lord. We gladly receive the gift of faith and the granting of repentance, Lord, that we might know uh, the joy of salvation, to believe in Christ. I pray again, Lord, that if any be here who do not know this joy, Lord, that they would know it, they would know it today, Lord, that they would repent and believe. Lord. You alone are Lord of the human heart. You alone can change us from the inside out, Lord. And I pray you continue to work in your people. You continue to work in us. Give us hearts, Lord, to look beyond ourselves to how we can be faithful to you in serving your kingdom and serving others, Lord. And that one day we too would hear the words that we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter and the joy of your Father's kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray these things for his sake and his glory. Amen.